Hey, Megan. Hey, Nicholas. So what did we talk about today? Today we had a special guest. My super hot Super Bowl brother was on with us today. That's what all my friends call him. <laughs> That's right. We talked about what it's like to plan three different Super Bowls. We talked about planning events in a COVID and post-COVID world. And we talked about how he's too cheap to buy a box fan. All that and more on another exciting episode of the Refreshing Edge podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Refreshing Edge podcast, hosted by Megan and Nicholas DeSalvo, about what businesses go through when branding, developing creative, and marketing their business in an ever-changing digital climate. It's also about leadership, company culture, building community, working with your spouse, and whatever we feel is important to share with you today. You might know Megan as an amazing wife, incredible mother, thespian, entrepreneur, co-owner, and creator of opportunities at Edge One Media, and volunteer for every nonprofit organization that exists in Portland and maybe beyond. You might know Nicholas for his love of coffee, tennis, watches, video games, and all things Portland. Usually we start off by asking who you are, what you do, and why it's important. So let's start there. Perfect. Um, well, on a personal level, I am Megan's brother. And um, on a professional level, um, I'm Kyle Chank, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, originally from Palm Springs, California, um, for me to do to be specific. And uh, right now I run the real estate development for the Minnesota Vikings and the Will family. And uh, what I love about it most and why I do it is um, I really think it's the future of what sports is going to be. And we're at kind of like a, a groundbreaking uh, startup type of feel for our company. Um, and it's one of those things where I get to learn something new every time I come into work every day. So that's that's kind of the high level of, uh, of who I am and uh, where I'm at today. So... <clears throat> That's the high level. Tell me about uh, what you're, what, you know, you said you do, um, what did you say, real estate or something like that for the Minnesota Vikings? Yeah, I guess that's the boring way to put it, but. Uh, Tell me what that actually means. Yeah, so what we, what we do is the Minnesota Vikings, obviously from the National Football League, uh, they play their home games in uh, US Bank Stadium in downtown Minneapolis. And about 15 miles from there, um, strategically positioned like seven or eight minutes from the airport, um, we own 200 acres of land. And uh, what we're developing is kind of a live, work, play atmosphere, and I oversee all of it. So we have a um, real estate platform um, that includes um, commercial properties, such as medical office buildings, um, high-end health and wellness tenants. And then uh, we have hotel properties, uh, the Omni Viking Lakes Hotel. And then we also run a residential program, um, which is about a thousand apartment units that overlook uh, the Vikings headquarters. So what we're really trying to develop is around the Minnesota Vikings, this live, work, play environment. And uh, we own, operate and manage it all. And then we program it and make it a fun place to live. That's awesome. Uh, do you find uh, over the course of the last, you know, year and a half or so, uh, have you had any difficulty in finding the tenants for those spaces or in developing that out as planned or how, how has that been? Yeah, uh, I think that the real estate market as a whole has been kind of turned upside down um, over the past year. But what I kind of to Nicholas's first question of why why I love what I do is that everything we do is really strategic. And so um, if it was Kyle Chank's law firm that wants to rent space, those type of tenants were probably the most affected um, that they took a strategic pause and said, um, we don't need space or we're downsizing and all that. But the tenants that we're going after um, are really uh, health and wellness centric. We actually in the middle of the pandemic signed two 
um, high-profile tenants, one a lacrosse company and one uh, the national governing body of USA Curling. And so luckily we were able to um, work through the pandemic, but also see that people still wanted to come to us because they see the strategic value of what we can offer. Um, and it didn't really take a negative effect on us. Were there any um, alterations or any major disruptions that you had from facing a, you know, a pandemic like we did? Yeah, I would say the two major ones were from a event side, which we in the middle of campus is a, a five, 5,000 seat stadium. We actually just hosted our first event uh, this weekend, a CrossFit tournament, uh, a three day festival that was our first event in 18 months um, on campus. And so that really took a, a huge hit on us. Um, and then from a, a side that probably every business can hit on is we've still technically um, have a policy in place that requires us to work from home. And we went from about seven employees pre-pandemic to uh, 28 employees. And so onboarding all of these uh, staff members and associates to uh, to our new organization virtually is a kind of a, a monumental task that we weren't ready for at the time, but uh, now it's almost second nature. So um, in the, on the flip side, bringing that back to where bringing 21 new people into the building or into our uh, operation that have never met each other face-to-face -face is a whole nother challenge. Yeah, we had some experience with hiring people in the pandemic, we, we made several. Um, without actually meeting them in person first. And that workflow is much more challenging because we don't, you know, before then we didn't know what it looked like to hire somebody without having some kind of meeting face to face with. And um, as we've transitioned back into face to face in office work, um, you know, the logistics around mask policies and safety policies, uh, in addition yep. to you know, whatever the local ordinances are, is complicated. Agreed. So one of our, or my core responsibilities during the time was creating the COVID plans and um, each one had a different one. So whether it's an office policy or a residential policy or a hotel policy, and still to this day, they all aren't the same um, as mm -hmm. most people are probably seeing, whether it's from a public-private asset or a um, hotel versus residential versus corporate side of things. So luckily, I think everyone has been really flexible and understanding of it, but it's a, it's definitely been a challenge as we really kind of brought our staff on while trying to establish a culture as well, too. Yeah, so for our audience, you know, we know all about you and your history and all of all of those things. But for our audience, um, I'd love for you to just dive in a little bit deeper to your history with events and um, the sporting world in general, and how you ended up in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, uh, happy to and probably best to work backwards because I, at the time, two and a half years ago, when I first uh, took the position I'm at now, I knew nothing about real estate. And what I really sold them on is the, the vision of culture and how sports and real estate and uh, innovation can really work together and um, use that from my experience in Super Bowls. And when you really uh, look at the past four or five Super Bowls that I did, it was bringing people together for awesome experiences in unique ways that they'll never get to experience again. And so um, I think on almost in every day in every business, you can try to strive to be like that. But um, my special events world working backwards was uh, Super Bowl 52 in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, and then Houston, Texas was Super Bowl 51. Uh, Super Bowl 50 in San Francisco, which Megan and Nicholas actually got to come check out in action. Um, and then Super Bowl 49 um, in Arizona. So four Super Bowls in a row. And really what I did there was everything but the football game. So um, getting people into the stadium, uh, making sure that everything worked well, whether it was transportation or food or halftime show, um, making sure that all the constituents had everything they needed to run a, an event. And 
then each year it grew and grew and grew and it's still growing um, to what you'll see in uh, at SoFi Stadium next year for uh, the Super Bowl in LA. Um, everyone tries to outdo each other, which is really cool. It's a great experience for the fans, but it also puts a lot of pressure on the operations and logistics of things. So um, when we first did the Super Bowl in Arizona, we had uh, the game and a small little fan experience. And now that fan experience is a 10 day long experience that runs from the Friday before Super Bowl um, for the first weekend so that the local general public, whether let's say it was in Portland, the Portland um, local crowd can come in and check out the events. And then the tourists come in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then uh, the game obviously over the weekend. And so producing all of that is a, a game in it all of itself. So um, it was a great experience and um, probably at the highest level um, of event production that you can do, uh, at least in the United States. And then before that, how I got into it was college athletics. And I was uh, in marketing and operations at Georgetown and Arizona State, did a little bit of um, operations for the Chicago Cubs at uh, their spring training facility. And really building on that, um, the best thing that I still use to this day is college athletics for most people is uh, a, a great experience, but it's also a grind. It's uh, working events Friday, Saturday, Sunday um, for a lot of events that don't actually make money um, for the school. And having that work ethic really shows whether it's a startup company or uh, a large scale event that you're there from 5 a.m. to 12 a.m. And as I mentioned in the events that we lost for the past 18 months is this weekend, even though we're a real estate company, um, we produced this CrossFit festival here um, in Minnesota that I was there from 5 a.m. to midnight. So having that background really just is the foundation for everything that I try to do um, and bring together here for the real estate program at uh, the Vikings. Yeah, you know, so what I find fascinating about all of the things that you've done, um, but, you know, picking one thing in particular, like the Super Bowl as an event is a series of lots of events. And, you know, the public knows it in, in large part because there's a big game on a Sunday, but there's also uh, a large footprint of, you know, Super Bowl City downtown for the week prior and events um, and programming all you know for the the 10 days previous and what it takes to um make something that you know hundreds of thousands of people will visit over 10 days is sort of amazing well and to ensure people can safely get there and back into their lodging and where i mean just to see how the puzzle pieces work together to make everything move and happen and to see your team in action and what that looked like uh, was incredible. Yeah, and I, I think what to add another layer onto it is uh, obviously the the numbers of that the people that watch it on Super Bowl Sunday are astronomical. And then Nicholas, like you said, 100,000 people that come through on a daily basis um, to the events, but you also have a higher end clientele. Only 70,000 people get to go to the game and I always used to joke with the ops guys and gals on the team that uh, the, the game's going to kick off at 6.07 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, no matter what, whether we do our job right or wrong, um, it will, the game is going to happen. So I look at it as all of our puzzle pieces that we're trying to get together is all leading up to that one kind of climax event, but our events are um, arguably more important and they range every everywhere from free events to the general public, which is really where the $100,000 or 100,000 uh, people coming through um, get to see. And then you have all the private events for the uh, people that may or may not have tickets. And then um, obviously the production crew for the TV uh, for Super Bowl Sunday. And the VIP lounge. And I mean, there's just so much, there's so much that goes into it that people just have no idea. You know, you hear a concert's happening somewhere. Bruno Mars is going to show up. You never know. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and all, it all feeds the experience. I mean, that's uh, the cool thing. You know, that's, I think one of the things that makes the NFL unique is the experience that goes along with the games and not everybody's going to get to go to the game, but they can all go 
uh, or, you know, a, a big chunk of people can live the experience for the week before the game to, you know, see what it's like. You know, if the Super Bowl's near them, they can go experience what the NFL is like. They can go do, you know, they can go see how high they can jump. They can go catch balls. They can go experience museums and see what, you know, go buy gear, all kinds of things. Yeah. And what I, I like it for kind of asking back to the original question again of why did, why did we do what we do is that uh, let's say you're a Seahawks fan or a, a Bills fan and they're not in the game, you can still enjoy and experience all the excitement. And the, the key word that a lot of people lo- lose in Super Bowl, yeah, the tickets are expensive and uh, there might be some VIP Bruno Mars concerts, but all the stuff that we produced, 95% of it was free. And you can't really do anything for free these days. And um, we produce at a higher level, if not the same level as like a, a Disneyland experience that comes right to your city that you're able to pop up and enjoy and still probably talk about four or five years later, whether it's um, kids or adults that got to go to the Super Bowl experience or Super Bowl city. Absolutely. So, and I think that that's the thing, like even our son, you know, who was little at the time remembers, you know, remembers that experience fondly. And I think that that's uh, the cool part about, you know, what you did was, was just the ability to, to impact families and um, people ranging of all kinds of income, you know, people who are low income to, you know, the wealthiest of the wealthy can experience um, the events and enjoy it. Agreed. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the other things that strikes me about you is that you have the schedule of an achiever. And uh, that is to say, you pack a lot of stuff in. Can you tell me a little bit about your daily philosophy or what it's like to even just live a a day of your life in your shoes? Yeah, and uh, so Jordan would roll her eyes at me and we've been together five years, Jordan's my girlfriend. Um, But I I use the word efficient a lot, even in our personal life. And um, I, I look at it that, even if you have, everybody has responsibilities that they need to do, whether it's outside of work or inside of work. And um, as long as you're efficient with your day, um, it doesn't matter if you work 24 hours a day or 12 hours a day. Um, I I really think this uh, pandemic has taught a lot of people um, a lot about balancing schedules and balancing personal and professional life. I, I tell my staff of 27 or 28 that we are now that if you want to ride your Peloton at two o'clock in the afternoon, that's great. I'm not going to question where you're at. Uh, It's just all about getting, getting your job done at all times. So to answer your question specifically, I I like to really kind of start my day at six in the morning, um, head into work and get as much as I can done before people get there. And then um, currently we are, uh, living out of a hotel, which is a whole longer conversation, but uh, go back and check on the, uh, the dogs by 11 o'clock and uh, work from there till about two or three, and then uh, go back to the office till about six or seven. And I need to get better at uh, kind of balancing that personal side of taking a break um, during dinner hours or uh, after hours. And then I, I usually work again till about 10 or 11 at night. And the work aspect could be anything from 15 minute meetings to uh, hour long presentations and just trying to uh, balance everything that we do in a uh, manageable schedule. Do you have any kind of rhythm to the day or there are things that happen in the morning that don't happen at, you know, like 10 o'clock at night? Um, I think that one, one thing that I've tried to, push our team on um, is that everybody's balancing a lot. Like I mentioned is don't send emails at 1030 at night or 11 o'clock at night or midnight. And obviously don't make phone calls at that time either, but really work on gathering your information and being as productive as you can when you're in, in the office or on whatever platform you're able to use, whether it's teams or zoom um, these days and 
finding that rhythm um, for me is in the morning, knocking out as much as I can email wise, and then uh, really carving out times in the day to be productive, whether that's a focusing on marketing for an hour or focusing on um, the building operations and walking the building for 30 minutes and really carving that out each time in the afternoon. And then um, really work on personal growth as well, too, whether that's listening to a podcast in the morning or reading a, a, a book at your desk for uh, 20 minutes before you leave for the end of the day. And then fitting in the occasional round of golf, right? Yeah, as I, I don't think it was recorded when I said that, but I am on the way back from the golf course. But balancing that, where um, a lot of the event industry is, uh, if you work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which we did this week for probably, we don't track hours, but probably 45 to 50 hours this weekend alone, um, Thursday to Sunday. But um, usually you would get Monday or Tuesday off, but balancing all of that where Monday morning at 8 a.m. we're shutting down parking ramps because we have a construction project going and then we have daily touch bases at 9 30 and then you really carve out 10 to 4 to um, golf on a Monday which is obviously a, a one we got to take advantage of golf here in Minneapolis when we can with the summer <laughs> weather but um, uh, yeah no then, I don't blame you I just wish I was there with you <laughs> yeah no, and then, and then heading home and taking a break and then uh, catching up on the 50 plus emails that you missed from the day. So you're right, balancing a little bit of fun in there as well, too, while doing doing work, whether you like to golf or whether you like to have a, a lunch meeting that may take you out of the office for two hours. What other fun are you having these days? Um, well, the main fun we're having right now is uh, we are remodeling our house, which started as fun and uh, it's broken the budget and really tested uh, tested living outside of your comfort zone um, a lot. But we uh, just got a second dog as well. Um, her name is Marshall and uh, uh, really just trying to, uh, to enjoy the summer months out here while you can in Minnesota, whether that's... Uh, just as simple as going for a walk or uh, um, going out to the lake for the weekend. Um, we we try to do as much as we can um, with the dogs and uh, Jordan and I. Have you been to all of the lakes in Minnesota? Oh, I think there's 10,000. Um, and what Jordan <laughs> and I are really bad at are uh, we have our favorite places and we pretty much go there the same. So we've probably hit the same seven lakes 10,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, you interface with a lot of people throughout the day. What, uh, what is it like to, you know, lead a group or a team, um, you know, that's growing and emerging and doing different things all the time? Um, I, I think the the two areas that I like the most about it is, that we have such a, a unique experience ahead of us that um, no one, I don't say no one knows what they're doing, but um, that we can really challenge each other. So when you walk into a room, your ideas, whether you're talking to um, the executive vice president of real estate that is in New Jersey, or if you're talking to our custodial attendant um, on campus, if the custodian has a great idea, and he's with the EVP or wants to call the EVP, we really encourage that. And we really want to create kind of a level playing field. We don't have a hierarchy system in place. And that's something that I've really, really pushed for from the beginning uh, to, to allow communication and culture to grow. Um, so I, I think interfacing on a day-to-day -day basis with the entire staff is the most important part. We, we don't get anywhere if it's um, just me or just, to other people talking on a day-to-day -day basis. And we don't get anywhere if it's four white males in a room talking, we really need diversity across all platforms. And then I'd say the second thing um, that I really, I, I personally enjoy is trying to look out to the future, whether it's uh, a month out or five years or 10 years and what our strategic plan is and really empowering people on our staff to, to think about the their future and how they 
fit into it. So if you're a um, office assistant right now, but really like marketing and we're about to post for a marketing assistant, how do we empower that person to get there? Um, and then finding the, the future of each person. So really that strategic, strategic succession plan in place that, that I really like as we grow the company. So I have a question. Tell us a little bit about the future of events as you see it, as we're emerging from this time. I think people are so excited, um, but I but I'm curious to see if uh, if this time has given uh, the people running those events time to um, think of new innovative ways for people to engage um, with events. Yeah, it's a great question, and I I think. Uh, if, if we knew the answer, us three here, we would uh, we'd be really well off in the future because that's the million dollar question: is how are people going to um, acclimate back to live events, and whether that's um, fifty thousand people um, for a national football league game, or if it's um, three thousand people at a local concert venue down the street. Um, what I really think is going to emerge is the kind of that event platform world of where virtual and reality meet and not talking about VR specifically, but how, how people will be able to experience it in whatever way and shape and form they want. And it may not be because they're scared to go. It may be because it's a cheaper barrier to entry or it allows them to watch it from one of the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota and not have to come to downtown Minneapolis and sit in traffic like I am. And so really giving people the opportunity to choose what they want to do at multiple price points and um, in the business world, how those event entities or owners try to monetize it too will be important uh, to make sure that they don't uh, kind of price themselves out of the market. Yeah, well, I can tell you that after a year and a half of Zoom meetings, um, you know, we were able to go to a baseball tournament this weekend, and it's just a little league tournament, and there were, you know, 50 or 60 people around the field, and people were cheering, and it was great, you know? <laughs> we hadn't been around that many people in, you know, a long time, and just, you know, there's something to be said for being in person someplace and feeling the energy of other people. And, um, you know, so fresh off that experience, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, and I, I think that's the first um, layer that's going to come back to, whether it's the, the Little League game or even just your farmer's market down the street. I, I think you'll see, especially like this Saturday will be 95 degrees here in Minnesota, and they'll probably break records at every farmer's market around here because people are just itching to get out and see what, what, it's kind of that first barrier to entry back into it. And then ultimately start going back to uh, blazer games and uh, Vikings games and everything in between. Yeah. So we, you know, in the, in the events in Portland, we've been one of the more conservative places in terms of reopening in the country. You know uh, it's only been very recently where uh, we've been able to like open restaurants again and, and things like that. Um, but this last week we saw 10,000 people in the Moda Center for uh, a Blazer game, which is about half capacity. And I'm, you know, very curious about what it's going to look like in different places in the country as we start to reopen, because it does seem like there is a thirst to get together. And in some areas it's completely open and there aren't any restrictions. And do you have any sense about, you know, the regionality of, op you know, event opening or um, anything like that? Yeah, I, I think uh, without getting into the political side of things, the, the South is almost at full force right now. And yeah. all of our partners are saying, be ready because it's coming here. And I would say, once again, from a business side, not politics, but uh, that the business of events is what's really going to drive this. Because as much as uh, getting 10,000 people back into an arena is great, uh, 
there's actually added costs to yeah. run events at a um, half capacity, whether it's blocking it off or putting an extra body there, um, extra uh, signage for social distancing, extra hand sanitizer. And so when when you really look at it, if if it doesn't make sense to have 10,000 people, it only makes sense to have zero or 18,000 people. Uh, I think you're going to have a lot more people that either go full bore or stay more conservative. And it's, uh, it's going to, like you mentioned, it's going to be a more regional aspect, but the business side of the sports and events world is really going to drive it. Yeah. I'm very curious about that actually, because there is a certain formula of, uh, of a revenue, uh, you know, and costs that makes, make running an event possible and profitable. And it's been disrupted significantly. And so I, you know, I'm curious about the decision to actually have, you know, 1500 fans in a building or 3000 fans in a building. Is that really, is that really worth it? Or is it just seen as um, a necessary step to get the building back to full? I think it's, uh, it's a great question. And I think it's a, uh, it's a necessary step in a way that we have to, we have to bring people back in a safe way to do it. So yeah. uh, we write all of our plans and policies in a way that uh, running a safe and healthy event is the most important thing. And to be honest, that's what it should have been before COVID anyways, it just made it a uh, more, more present conversation. Um, so if that's what it takes to do, um, I think every owner is, is going to do a little, little bit of a staged ramp up, even if it means losing money, um, where the consumer might be, uh, more burdened in the long run is they're not going to make blazer tickets or Vikings tickets more expensive in 2021, but they may make it more expensive in 2022 um, now that people are back and you might see more than your normal two to three percent inflation you might see a five percent ticket increase to offset the losses in 2021 and the losses in 2020 uh, minus all the loans that uh, smaller people may have got yeah well and also you know uh, an organization a professional sports organization may have the ability to absorb the cost of running um, a a less attended event, or you know, uh, an event that doesn't have as many fans. But what happens to the much smaller kinds of businesses and sports organizations who can't really absorb the cost of running a a half um, attended event? In a, in a profitable way, which they need to be able to do in order to actually run the event. Yeah, I, I think the for my recommendation for smaller organizations would be that people are itching to get back out there. And just because they may have not come to a minor league baseball game um, in 2018 pre-pandemic, the Jordan and I would probably rather go to a St. Paul Saints game, which is the minor league team here than a twins game. Um, just because it's a, it, it may feel a little bit safer. So take, take the extra, uh, kind of leap of faith and do, do something that may attract people that you may have not gotten before. Um, so from a smaller perspective, um, I, I think there still is opportunity to, to attract new markets, to bring in new revenue. How is uh, Minnesota in general? Like, you know, what what are things like there right now? Um, so it kind of probably, and I'll use this as a, a question back to you guys as well too, but uh, when we first set up this meeting uh, probably a month ago, uh, we were still in lockdown and um, we're, restaurants were still at 25% capacity, uh, some not not opening because they weren't making money. And then uh, on May 27th, rather than go from uh, zero to 50%, they went straight to 100% no masks, 100% capacity across the board. And a lot of businesses were caught off guard. And we uh, we actually ran the event last week at a 
50% capacity um, just to be safe. We didn't want to be the first person to come back with a um, 100% event, but the a good event or a good example of a local company that took advantage of it was the Minnesota State Fair on Memorial Day opened up an event for 10,000 people and it sold out in two minutes. And uh, so there was that demand, but a lot of other organizations, ourselves included, didn't have the necessary time to just flip the switch and go back to 100% from our policies and staffing and uh, everything in between. Well, I, I think that's a, a really well-made point about the preparation it takes to put on events and, and how difficult it has been in, in this climate just due to the uncertainty of what is allowed. Yep. And that's up and down the board from big businesses to small ones. You know, restaurants in our area in particular have been hard hit because it goes back and forth so much and they have to throw out things because they bought for an expectation that changes. That's just what I was going to say, you know, because they, you know, when they first shut down, they had all of this um, food, the downtown restaurants and the theaters, because a couple big shows were coming to Portland. And so when big shows come to Portland, there's, you know, you've got all of the hotels are booked, all of the restaurants are full all of this. And so they had all of this food um, in the theaters and in the hotels and in the restaurants that had to be donated. And then even when the, when it got donated to the Oregon food bank or to the um, homeless shelters that took it, there was, oh, there was excess of food. Um, so that happened the first time. Then we locked down uh, when they reopened slightly restaurants again, started buying more and then they were shut down again. And so it just kept on being this, teeter-totter back and forth. Um, and we've had a lot of restaurants have to close down for good because of all the costs associated with the amount of um, food they had to, food yeah. waste they had to throw up. Stops and starts. The stops and starts are hard. And then, and then also, you know, I'm part of a downtown organization that is trying to think about summer programming, like summer events that yeah. might be possible but we have no idea how to do that because we don't know what the city will allow um, in terms of risk management and permit pulls, you know, even a month from now. And so uh, planning an event on public property is particularly difficult for that reason. Completely agree. And I mean, planning an event of <clears throat> that size, and we do that even on I'll say in our current programming scheme, we host large events, but we also this Thursday um, at 6 p.m. just host local lacrosse um, practice on the field. And then on Friday or Saturday, we'll do a 5K walk in the area. Um, but the amount of planning that goes into a 5K walk already is a lot of work. Yeah. And then to put COVID on top of it, um, these organizations are self-included, which we're a small, small kind of startup company um, to produce a 50 page COVID plan is just not realistic. And uh, it's not, not fair to the organizations that, that have to do it with uh, all the other stuff that it takes to run an event. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that's part of a conversation that has to be uh, more I don't know, more transparent. transparent between public officials and private entities mm -hmm. and what the decisions are, how those reflect and how realistic it is to be able to change things or plan things when stuff like this changes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these out of the blue things, like you mentioned, it went from zero to completely opened up very quickly. And I can't imagine what that would be like to all of a sudden have to deal with the logistics of, um, you know, whether you're policing masks, you know, that's one of the things that happened here was that instead of saying you can go unmasked now, they say, if you have been, if you are fully vaccinated, you can go unmasked, but it's up to the businesses to police whether or not you have been vaccinated. 
So businesses have to check vaccination cards in order to allow unmasked people in their establishments, yeah, which is that's, another, that's another burden. It is another burden and it's another, you're putting as tough as take you guys as business owners, as tough as that conversation is for someone like us that manage staff, uh, you have to put yourself in the staff shoes that don't want to have those conversations because uh, sure. even, sure. even if nine out of 10 of them are like, very nice yeah here's my vaccination card the backlash of one negative comment not even nine out of ten uh nine thousand ninety nine out of uh ten thousand it's just the one negative comment is just going to to supersede everything that all the hard work you did well and i think it just pits people against one another versus um creating a community that is collaborative um with one another so i you know it's it's interesting i think i think there's lots of things you know not to get political i just think there's lots of things that could have been done at a federal level from the start that would have made um life for business owners and and the general public easier um from the get-go so that we could all be on the same page it's really difficult to have all of the different states doing things so different than one another. Um, you know, we cross over into Washington and there's different rules. You cross into Idaho and there's different rules. Um, California, completely different. So, you know, it just, it's it's very uh, interesting to see how this all unfolded. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it'll... Say, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, we really went through this about 16 months ago as well too as things were stopping mainly because uh people were still trying to have events while all this uncertainty was going on and for one positive out of it all of the whole shutdown is that people didn't have to make these tough decisions it really just stopped in general but the the worst is ahead of us in the events world of trying to get these people back in unique fun situations in a safe manner because uh it's only going to get a little bit more muddy before it gets clearer. And uh, I, I don't envy the uh, political uh, positions that have to make these tough decisions, but uh, the transparency and clarity does that, that does definitely need to get better. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I also believe that public officials are doing the very best that they can with yes. something that, you know, there's no script for this. There's no handbook to figure out what you should do next. And they are trying to make the best decisions for the most people. And that means that what's good for someone is not necessarily good for all. But I do feel like sometimes the transparency or the reasoning for different decisions could be explained uh, better than it is because there is a lot of things that come out of left field without any real fulfilling explanation for why. Yeah. And I think, I think it comes down to communication. You know, I think, uh, you know, a class in communication tactics would be good for anyone in leadership of, of any kind. And I also think that if anyone has had uh, any ounce of leadership or leadership training experience, um, then they do have nothing but, um, you know, nice things to say about our public officials, because it is oftentimes a thankless job that they do. And it's a very difficult one um, to take um, all the constituents that they have and try to try to make the best decisions for the group of them. So um, yeah. one one last comment I'll make on that is Nicholas, you said that there's no script to all this, which is 100% true. But from a business standpoint, whether at a public level or a private level, I think that I use I personally used it as an opportunity and I challenged our staff to do it too, because um, it really levels the playing field and whatever burden that you real burden or not that you may think was in place. And whether it's me being a, a younger executive in a room full of more experienced people, it's a really level playing field. Now, none of them, none of them have ever been through a pandemic. If someone says they know the answer, they're, they're lying. They don't. And so it really gives an opportunity for people to speak up, whether it's a, a barrier on age or race or gender to give give their thoughts and for everyone to take it seriously, because every idea really is a, a great opportunity to 
to try to help solve some of these issues in place. I think that's a really interesting point because I also think that this was a big opportunity for people. I know that it was difficult. The circumstances, you know, the effects of being shut down, you know, we interface with a lot of like small businesses and micro businesses and the effects of being shut down could and were catastrophic. But when um, shutdown first happened, there was a big opportunity to reach out and connect with people in ways that we never have before. And the people who were able to do that successfully and really committed to reaching out and trying to establish communities and communication and being together with people really saw benefits that others who didn't do that didn't see. Agreed. And that leads me to my next question you you touched on. You are a young uh, executive. And I, I oftentimes tell people um, in my meetings with them that it's great to have a strategy to reach people at any level, but you really do need to be looking at the younger executives and how you can speak to them. Because I think that there is a um, resurgence of that generation taking over large positions, CEOs, you know, we see younger CEOs, we see younger VPs, um, people in really high levels uh, making uh, important decisions and we're using social media to get in front of them. But sometimes like your case in point specifically, social media isn't the best way to get in touch with you. So what methods do you like people to use to get your attention? Um, well, I would say it's a great point all around. Um, to answer your specific question, I, I think that if it's a really important question, um, that getting getting the answer across as quickly as possible, whether it's a text message or um, a quick phone call, is always going to be the easiest way to do it. Um, if if that isn't possible, whether you don't know the person or it's you're trying to make contact. Um, I'm more on the professional side of LinkedIn is my almost only social media channel. Um, but I also think that if someone goes out of their way and finds your email or writes you a letter, whether it's by hand or um, typed up to your office space, you can always find a way to get in contact with people. And even though it's maybe a little bit tougher, um, if you make the effort 90% of the time people are going to respond to you. Um, and uh, if they don't respond, you don't want to do business with them anyways. And um, I, I would say the second point I would have is for the younger generation, and um, Megan, you know this specifically, is I'm uh, the future board chair of the Dakota County Chamber of Commerce here in uh, Dakota County, which represents kind of the Southeast suburbs of um, Minnesota. They are really trying, they're really struggling on targeting um, the generation of whether it's millennials or anywhere in that uh, age range. And what I'm really focused on is building leaders that actually want to be a part of the chamber, want to be a part of um, businesses, whether it's private or public, that uh, we educate them on what it is, most importantly, and then make it a, a fun experience, whether it's throwing out the, the procedures of meeting minutes and all the barriers in between and make it a more non, um, a more informal setting, whether it's a 30 minute board meeting and then 30 minutes of social networking, which is why everyone wants to be there. And so if you really take that to the private business side of the world is a lot of these uh, people that are coming out of college that getting positions of higher uh, higher caliber, higher status, making decisions that affects people's lives and livelihoods, um, you really need to build a culture around them and make sure that you're attracting that type of talent. Because if you're not going to do it, then someone else is, and you're going to be, you're going to fall back into the old workplace that people are trying to get out of right now. Yeah, one of the things I would love to go back to is when you said that you uh, were a young executive and maybe that's a challenge that you faced is, uh, 
is something that I think could be beneficial to a lot of people is that um, I think you've taken your perceived challenge, something that you may have been self-conscious about, and you've embraced your difference and utilized it as a strength. You know, you're a young executive, but that means you have energy for things that other people don't have energy for. You're a young executive, and that means that means a lot of different things that are unique about you, and things that are unique about you are strengths. They're differentiators. They're reasons that you might be remembered. And so as a concept in life, in business, in marketing, differentiators are good. I completely agree. And I think the, the main barrier, which if someone, maybe, maybe even one of us three are still going through, but a lot of it is how you perceive things internally. And um, Jordan and I, we read a lot of, whether it's leadership books and then sprinkle in um, fiction and nonfiction and uh, social justice books as well too. But from a leadership standpoint, one that I really focused in on is that that was me putting up a barrier that didn't exist to anybody else. It was just me walking into a room and thinking that I'm a young person and they're not gonna take, take my um, idea seriously. And once I got past that, and one book that I would recommend is called Quiet, and it's about introverts, and um, that I actually kind of classify more as a introverted extrovert, where in front of people, I'm, I'm very outgoing, but I need time to, to myself, whether it's at night and just for a 30-minute kind of conversation where I can just sit there and talk to myself about how I'm going to approach the next meeting. And so once you get through that barrier, then you're exactly right. The, the opportunities there are really what make people like us, even if you take age out of it, um, people that are go-getters and really have that schedule that you're talking about. I want to work with people that are like me, where if we say there's XYZ that needs to get done, it's not no, it's yes, how do we do it? And it's a matter, obviously, it doesn't work 40 hours this weekend alone and got the same salary across the board. It's uh, that extra effort that's going to pay off in the long run. Absolutely. And I think that I've, I've run into that with uh, my gender, you know, more just being a woman in the workplace. Um, being taken seriously when you walk into a room full of men, uh, things of that nature have been struggles for me. But I, I have realized that a lot of those were my own perceived struggles. Um, it wasn't necessarily, you know, something that, that the men in the room felt. Um, and then also being a mom, you know, oftentimes it's, it's difficult because my life revolves around my children. I, they're, you know, they are the reason I do everything I do. They're the reason I get up and work so hard tirelessly each day. Um, and I, I think, you know, I want to talk about them and be proud of them. And in the workplace, that can be really difficult um, when people can't relate or when, or when that's seen as a weakness. Um, and I think that there have been times where people have, um, you know, had that perceived notion with me, but um, in general, I think a lot of it has just been my own, my own doing. So I, I like that. And I would also say that even though I'm extroverted, I would say I'm also in need of that introverted time. So maybe, maybe I'm like you in some ways. <laughs> oh, I, I think uh, Megan, all I was going to say is that you, uh, you make a great point too, that everyone's going through different things. And uh, by, by us talking about it, um, I'll also say that I'm a middle-class white male, which is a very different uh, set of, challenges that other people have that whether they're they might even be not even barriers that um, aren't internal they're actually real barriers and so talking about it to say hey how can we help those people whether it's the gender or the race conversations that we're all on the same team here and we want to make sure that we are able to address them and help people whether it's in our organization or whether it's clients or friends and family um, get to the um destination and goal, whatever that may be for them. And that's been something that I worked really hard with in the Tiger Chamber um, was representation and making sure people had a seat at the table and a voice in the room. And I think that um, it, it's difficult because oftentimes people don't get invited to the room. 
uh, to have a voice at it or invited to a seat at the table. And so that's been something that I personally, um, as a white female, have said, you know, I need to be sure that there are people in here who represent everything um, that I do not. So there are voices for every every circumstance that we might come across. Um, so we know how things in, impact different um, people um, for their gender or their race or um, sexuality or their income level. You know, I think also like low income families get overlooked oftentimes. Um, and we were just talking about that at Little League, you know, Little League families, you know, we need to outre have outreach to those lower income families to make sure that they have um, the ability to take part. So. It's, um, it's great to hear that you, uh, as a young white male, uh, have already, you know, started down that journey of making sure that, that people have a voice. Oh, I agree. You kind of broke up at the end there. I didn't actually hear that last bit, Megan. Oh. Where did I stop? Just, the, just like the last sentence that you said. Yeah, it was oh, just the last I, sentence. Oh, I think it's great that you as a uh, young white male have already gone down the path and the journey to see that representation matters and that it's important for people to have a voice at the table. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that once, once you're able to have that conversation and then people that are in the business that are whether it's diversity to uh really change the the workplace or the roadmap because bringing people into the organization that you're already in that may not be attracting them isn't the answer whether that's the chamber or your actual organizations um you really need to deliver on the promises of what people that you're trying to attract want and need Absolutely. So I guess, um, you know, because we're, we're getting to the point that we've been talking for a while now, but I have, I have another burning question is, um, how do you create that welcoming culture? Um, well, I'm big on the idea that it needs to happen organically. And what we're really doing here um, in our organization, which I think I've said it a couple of times, it really is a startup uh, type of organization, um, it's not going to happen overnight. And if, if you have that, um, dream or goal that you're going to fix it by June, um, July 4th of this year, uh, that's just not realistic. And so you want to develop a culture that happens, whether it's by camaraderie with the staff and doesn't always need to be spending money, but doing, um, activities together, um, Megan, like you mentioned, talking about your kids or talking about your dogs, talking about um, how you like to run and really bringing those types of uh, conversations into the workplace. Um, and then really allowing people to have that um, flexibility or autonomy to, to balance their schedules and like I mentioned, if you want to ride the Peloton at two o'clock in the afternoon, which I don't have a Peloton, but it's that type of thing where you really want to, to make sure that people are able to do it. And if your kids um, are sick from daycare, because daycares, if you have one thing of uh, snot, now you have to get sent home. You really have to be able to be flexible on that. And that's, that's the challenge of this year. And then by 2023, we'll have another set of challenges that we have to get through and really trying to, to build the culture in, in a way that isn't a one size fits all. Um, and it's, it's something that makes your company unique. And um, to kind of Nicholas's point of finding that challenge of being the go-getter and wanting to do that, that's what makes people start their own company. That's what makes people go to work every day is trying to figure out the secret sauce that will attract more people to come work with you. Absolutely. Well, I always say you're my little brother, but I look up to you a lot. So uh, I'm very proud of all the things you've accomplished in your years. And I look forward to seeing all the things that you have yet to come because I know you're just on an incredible life journey. Well, I appreciate that. And it was a uh, it's great to see your guys's uh, office in the background. I can't wait to see it in person um, soon, but uh, everything you guys are doing, even from 
podcast, which uh, may your first couple ones, maybe it was put you guys in a vulnerable state where it's just putting yourself out there to uh, more tough converse or tough uh, decisions, whether it's uh, personal or professional of hiring staff and now being responsible for people. And um, it's really cool to see that uh, even getting an email from um, an admin assistant, who was very nice, by the way, but um, it's, it's those type of things that um, they may not seem like much, but those are stuff that's stuff you guys should be proud of so i'm i'm really proud of you guys as well too well thank you so much (laughs) so um if people wanted to get in touch with you how would they get a hold of you um linkedin's the best and i will always uh respond um I, i think that goes to the point um of making the effort and not just seeing if they're on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Um, but, uh, also on, I think on my LinkedIn, I haven't updated it recently, but, um, I think my personal email is actually on there too. So you could probably find that, um, if you dig enough, but at the very least, uh, reach out on LinkedIn and, um, always happy, especially in this day and age, what I would push people on is, um, to set up a call or a zoom or a team set, uh, people, they don't have excuses anymore. Even if you're not even in the same state, you, you can make 30 minutes or even 10 minutes of people's time to just say hello and ask a, a simple question. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank, well, thank you for taking yeah. the time today. And we you're look forward welcome. to seeing you very soon. Yes, no, I can't wait. And we, uh, we owe a trip out to, uh, to Portland. It's been way, way overdue, but um, we, uh, we can't wait to have you back out in uh, Minnesota too and see our new house. Yes, I'm excited to see that once the remodeling is all, all finished. So let us keep us posted. Let us know. I won't come though when there's snow on the ground. Just, just a heads up there. Not a, I'm not a cold weather <laughs> so she person. She can come for two weeks in July and that's it. <laughs> that's it. Well, and I will can show me some of those uh, 10,000 likes. <laughs> exactly. And Nicholas, I did text her. It is. Uh, so we're, we're staying at a hotel for the foreseeable future, but when we get home, it's 95 degrees out right now. And I did buy Jordan a fan. So we, oh, uh, yes. we do have, yes. do have uh, some uh, air circulation in our old house. Yes. So for, for those who don't know, uh, Kyle is, uh, you know, just frugal. I would say you're frugal. And, uh, and when we visited last, uh, we, uh, stayed with them and, uh, it was really hot. It was in the middle of, it was in the middle of summer and Jordan had wanted to get a fan for a long time. And Kyle needed to go warm up to the idea. He had to, he had to make sure it was a good deal. He had to make sure that the (laughs) the fan were the features that he wanted there's a lot of things that go into the decision of buying a fan. And so as she was starting to tell us this, as we were walking down a street in Minneapolis, I went onto Amazon and ordered them one to their door. (laughs) And the story lives in infamy. So uh, it's uh, one of our favorite stories. It's a good one. It's a good one. Well, I think it's true. It's, you know, you want to make sure that your investment, be it time, talent, or treasure, that your investment is worth whatever it is you put it. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No. And I, I agree. I, I think frugal is a good word, but I also, I also have a side where I like to live for the moment as well too. And if it costs X amount of dollars to do something that you'll always remember, whether it's a Super Bowl or something that is on your bucket list, uh, I would never hesitate to, to do that. That's why I like to save five bucks on a fan to have it add up. <laughs> it all makes exactly. sense. It all makes sense. Exactly. It all makes sense. That way when your sister comes to town, you can give her a heck of a good time in Minnesota. Exactly. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Share it with a friend. Follow us on the socials. At Edge One Media. At This Is Nicholas DeSalvo. Or at Megan DeSalvo.
If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Share it with a friend. Follow us on the socials. At Edge One Media. At This Is Nicholas DeSalvo. Or at Megan DeSalvo. 